Good morning. My name is Dave Selvig, and this morning we'll be reading, the scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, so please uh, follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, from the New American Standard Bible. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power." When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, like a garment They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to second service. Today we are beginning a new sermon series. We are calling Witness in Christ in Culture. I want to begin by sharing that Hebrews was written to a Uh, audience that was very much like our culture and society today. It was a church that was in flux, experiencing change in the climate of the culture. And the call on uh, this group was to remain steadfast in their witness to Christ while remaining in the culture. The easier thing to do is to stay connected to Christ, but disconnected from the culture, or to be in the culture 
and to be free-flowing in the culture, but not really connected to Christ. To do those, both of those things well, that's really the call on the church. Your job as light and salt is to bear witness, to have firsthand accounts of Christ that you bear witness to while staying connected in your culture. You can't be connected to Christ, but not in the world at all. How do you do that? Well, in the book of Hebrews, uh, it climaxes with a list of witnesses who, even under the threat of their own life, remained faithful as witnesses to Christ, to the culture. Uh, It's been my read of our society and the church in this society that a large portion of Christians, we actually aren't bearing witness to Christ while remaining connected to the culture. A lot of Christians love Jesus. They are connected to Jesus, but they have formed their own Christian subculture. They don't know how to relate to non-Christians. They don't know how to be in the world, how to not be threatened by society and by culture. They like the safe haven of being with just Christians and hanging out with Christians and talking with Christians. But if somebody who's who's a non-Christian is in the room, they suddenly uh, have a raised level of anxiety. On the other hand, uh, there are Christians who love the culture, who believe that the culture needs to be redeemed, but they begin to lose touch with Christ. How do you remain connected to Christ while remaining in culture? It's easy, I think, to say you are a Christian, but really what you are bearing witness to are your personal agendas, your way of life, your viewpoints, your perspectives, or Christianity has become a kind of escape mechanism in your life. Jesus calls us to engage reality to the fullest, and yet we use Christianity to disengage from reality. It's kind of like a crutch. And so lots of non-Christians around the church have accused the Christians of being hypocrites, of being anti-intellectual, of being anti-culture, hateful and angry and judgmental. And I think a lot of these uh, names are well-deserved. The challenge of the book of Hebrews is to actually experience the real person of Jesus. For you and you and you and you and me to have our own firsthand accounts of who Jesus is. And it's going to be different than some preconceived notions that you assumed, some teachings that you sort of just uh, embraced as your own that may or may not be an accurate depiction of who Jesus is. You have secondhand and thirdhand and fourthhand accounts of Jesus. But what is your first-hand experience of Jesus. Who is he? What is he really like? And then the call on you then is to bear witness to the things you have seen and heard. It is possible to be genuine witnesses, to really see something great and have that grip us 
and cause that to overflow out of us. You know, the best evangelists, the most effective and persuasive evangelists are those who actually believe in something, who actually have borne witness to something. And it's my conviction that everybody is an evangelist about things that you believe in. If you deem it as worthy and beautiful and good and true and helpful, you will find ways to talk about it. You will weave it into every conversation you have. Oh, that reminds me. And you work in your talking point because you believe in it. Evangelism is something you can't help but do. It's not just technique. It's not just obligation. It's not just something you have to do, but it's something you get to do and can't help but do because you are a witness. And so my hope uh, for this sermon series and what we will get out of it as a church is that we will begin to bear witness to the actual person of Christ And when we share about Christ, it will be because we actually have seen something. And nothing more and nothing less. Two questions I want to begin today uh, with is, one, who is Jesus? And two, who are you? We'll begin with who is Jesus in verse 1 and 2. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. A couple of uh, phrases I want to point out. First is the word portions. And what that means is pieces or amounts. And what the author is saying is that God throughout history has been giving us little bits and pieces of himself through different things. We have never ever seen a complete picture of who God is, but just little tiny bits and pieces. And then this next word, ways, uh, it's the uh, Greek word for categories. And what that means is these little pieces have come to us in these categories, for example, like creation. Through creation, as a category, we got a small little piece or a glimpse of a part of God. We understand just a little bit of God through this one category we call creation. Scriptures also talk about the human conscience, that through your own conscience, you begin to come to some sort of initial understanding of what God is like. When you do something and you feel a pang in your conscience, a little prick, And you say, oh, what is that? How come I feel bad? How come I don't feel so good? Well, why do you feel that? Because you were made in the image of God and your conscience is giving you a little taste of what God is like. Another category is circumstances. Through various circumstances, you come to understand how life works. And you say, oh, I see now, I've learned something today. What we call truth, what we call wisdom, many of these lessons are learned through circumstances. Another category or way is what the scriptures call law. God has revealed revealed himself in a partial way through the Ten Commandments. We know what is right and we know what is wrong. 
through the Ten Commandments. Those laws are a small little partial descriptor of who God is and what he is like. And lastly, the final category is people. Through each other, through conversation, through relationship, through the uh, reactions that we see on the faces of those in front of us, like mirrors, we come to understand how we are made, how we are wired. And that's a little sampling of what God is like. So in these partial little ways, portions, and in these various ways, we come to know God throughout history. It's what theologians call progressive revelation. That means that throughout history, we learn a little bit more. More truth is layered on than before. It's called scaffolding, if you understand education theory. It's part of how we grow as human beings. At first, you know, we're born. We don't even understand what these things are that are moving, like little Theo Krell. He doesn't know, but these are his fingers that are moving. He doesn't know that he has 10 of them. He has 10 of them, Tim? He's got 10 fingers. Thank the Lord. So he's moving his fingers. And then he learns to count on these fingers. And then he learns to take away. He learns to add. And then he learns how to do integrals and physics and complex astronomy. He learns all these things, not all at once. All at once, he can know very little. But over time, in layers, in pieces, and in many ways, he begins to learn more and more about how the world works and who he is in the world. Progressive revelation. And then the phrase here, in these last days. Now, this is a really, really meaningful couple of words here. That means that throughout history, God has been working to convey himself to us. Now, why would God do that? This is the mission and heart of God to convey himself to us. His will, his desire, his heart's desire is to reveal himself to us that we might know him. All throughout history, even in these last days, And then it says, whom he appointed uh, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Notice it doesn't say by his son. Or it doesn't say through his son. But it says in his son. And what that means is that Jesus wasn't just a messenger. There wasn't some external aspect or truth about reality or about God that Jesus was charged with communicating to us. But Jesus himself encompasses all truth and all knowledge and all wisdom and all reality. He himself is God exactly. This is really mind-blowing stuff as we think about it. And notice the author says, through whom also he made the world. And what that means is there's nothing else in the world. There's been no other portion or piece or no other category or way ever in the history of existence that is not somehow encompassed 
in the Son, in the person of Jesus the Christ, is all knowledge and all truth about all reality that is God. He is the complete and final expression and communication and reality of who and what God is. That means there is not going to be any more revelation. There is nothing else ever that's going to come into existence that does not exist in and by the Son, Jesus the Christ. Now, this is really important for us to understand because the, this is the key differentiator for Christians that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. I think I mentioned earlier uh, in a sermon this summer that uh, this year I read a really thick, comprehensive book, uh, a book of history about the four great world religions. And Jesus Christ really is somebody that is outstanding. It's just categorically different than any other messenger that this world has ever seen. And the truth that sets Christianity apart is this. God, though he is one God exists in triune form as a community. God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this triune reality that is God is a community of love. Now, love is not God. But God is love. We don't worship love. But God is love and we worship God. That means that reality itself is defined by love. Your purpose is love. You were made by love, for love. And there's nothing else in your heart, in your mind, in your existence that desires anything other than love. Your meaning, the reason for your existence is love. Where does that come from? It comes from the Trinity. It comes from the Godhead being a perfect community. You know, uh, this week I had this experience, and I haven't had this uh, for the summer because the kids haven't been playing soccer, but one of my girls uh, is like a bonafide soccer star, I got to say. And I never thought I would be this loser dad who has no life of his own and who is trying to live all of his glory days through one of his kids. But here I am, middle-aged and living through my kids. And I was so excited to see my daughter do well. And I felt things in my heart. I never thought I would feel this pride and joy. And I can't stop thinking about the last final goal that she made. And my wife the same way. And last night as we were going to bed, we just looked at each other in bed and we just smiled. And we hadn't talked, but we knew exactly what we were thinking about. We felt the exact same emotions. And then we woke up at 6.30 this morning and we looked at each other and guess what we were still thinking about? (laughs) That kind of connectedness, that kind of oneness and intimacy and solidarity of 
purpose and support, the kind of foreness that we have for our children and the love we have for each other as a family. Where does that come from? Why is that the longing of my heart? I want every layer and barrier to be removed. I want to be me. I don't want to lose my sense of me. And yet I want to be lost in somebody else. I want their love to be so true and good for me that it is no burden for me to love that person truly and totally in return. Why do I have that desire? You know, those of you who are in this room and you're young and you're not married yet, and when you think, oh my gosh, he understands me. And that satisfies you so much. Where does that come from? Why is it important that he gets you? Some of you think, oh, he completes me. Or she, why? Well, that's from the triune God. You were made in the image of this triune God. You were made by love, for love. And you will not find a greater purpose in life than love because you are made in the image of this triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Deny that and you will be denying your very self. This is God. In verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't know how to understand this as I was trying to think about this fact that Jesus is distinctly different than God and yet he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. As I began to think about this, I began to feel like I was taking philosophy 401 or something because my mind began to bend around itself, and then it started collapsing. And then at the same time, I wanted this so bad. I wanted to be on the inside of this beautiful, perfect community of love. I realized as I read commentator after commentator describing what the Trinity is like, that I want this. This has been what I want. I want to feel the oneness with all of creation. I want to feel connected. I don't want to be on the outside. What is that? Where does that come from? It's the Trinity. And I want to tell you, you may not understand the Trinity. You may not believe in God even. But I want you to hear this, read this, and say, you know, I don't know what that is. But I think that resonates with me. I don't know who this Jesus guy is. I don't understand this triune thing. But... I do feel like that's who I am. And that does encompass everything that I've ever hoped for in life. If you are breathing, if you have a heartbeat, you are made by this and for this. Jesus is distinct from the Father, but is God. And Jesus is God, the missionary to us, sent by God to convey God the Father perfectly to us. Therefore, Jesus is the final witness 
of God, from God, to us. Search. Go out there. Go study all world religions. Go live the life you think you need to live, and you will come back to the person of Jesus because he is the perfect representation of everything your own heart has been longing for. And he sat down. What a random thing to put in a list of very great words. He sat down. Why? Because he did it completely and perfectly. He sat down not because he's tired, but because he finished the work that he was sent to do. Now, uh, there are a few descriptions of Jesus I don't want to miss. Verse 4 having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is not an angel. He's categorically different than an angel. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Jesus has incomprehensible oneness with God the Father. And yet, it resonates with us, and the invitation is for us to experience that. Verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. One of the things I love about the fact that we worship God is, who else are we going to worship? If people ever ask you, why do you go to church and worship God? You say, well, who else should I worship? Should I worship somebody else? Name one person who is worthy of worship. And there is none. There is nobody else who is worthy of worship. God is not a glory hog. He doesn't just love glory for glory's sake. But he's a God of truth. And he alone truthfully deserves the worship. So we worship God. I am not worthy. You are not worthy. So we worship God. Verse 7, 8, and 9. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you, anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. This is where we get the phrase, king of kings and Lord of lords. If there were other kings before Jesus, they were not actually kings. They were just in the category of kings, which are pointing the way to the king of kings. If there were lords before, they were not actually lords. They were just filling the category of lords because Jesus alone is Lord. He is the Lord of lords. We've never had a, had a king apart from Jesus. We've never had a Lord apart from Jesus. There's no one greater. Not before, not now, not ever. King of kings. Lord of lords. And then verse 10 through 13. And you, Lord, 
In the beginning lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In these four verses are these five Big theological words, eternal, immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. That is, God is forever. There is no time with God. You know, sometimes you ask the question, does God know the future? Well, there is no future to God. There is no information that hasn't happened yet that God is dependent on, and he has to now go learn it so he knows how to rule the world. He is eternal, immutable. He never changes. It doesn't mean he's boring. It means that he has no deficiency. He has no needs. You know, remember we study this summer. God says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? I love that. He's not hungry, but if he was, he certainly wouldn't come to you. What do you have that you didn't receive from God? The dynamic, it flows down to us. We don't give anything to God. He is immutable, omniscient. That means he knows everything there is to know, but not as we know. We are learning things. There is knowledge and wisdom outside of us, and we are catching up to it. But God is wisdom. God is knowledge. There is no reality outside of who God is. He is reality. Nothing is apart from God. Scriptures tell us if God were to withdraw his breath, then everything just disappears. It just ceases to be. Thermodynamics dynamics tell us that nothing can be created or destroyed unless God withdraws his breath, and then there's no more existence of that thing that God withdrew his spirit from. Because he is everything. He is omnipresent. It's not like he's limited by space. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by space. He is here and there and everywhere, fully all at once. And he is omnipotent. There is nothing he cannot do. Now, the scriptures do tell us that he can't lie, but lies will cease to be. There will be only truth because there's only God. Now, this kind of God, eternal, immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, this God, for some reason, has been on mission to convey himself to us. How do you convey eternal, immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent? How do you communicate that to little ants? How? How does God do that? That's verse 14. Who are you? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? It's all been about Jesus. It's all been about God. And then suddenly in verse 14, we are now part of the picture. And we begin to learn that we are the point. Are they not all ministering spirits, that's the angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those, who's those, who will inherit salvation? That 
is us. And you know what the word inherit means? Notice it doesn't say give or pay. It says inherit. means that we are children. We are brought into, invited into the Father, Son, Spirit, triune community of love. We are invited to the intimacy. We're invited to the inside of that perfection. We are asked to be co-heirs, co-rulers with Christ as his sisters and brothers. And I know that's weird to think about in the abstract, but think about it in the present, in the context of your own heart. Isn't that what you want? All your longing for security and love and power and stability and safety and warmth, your longing for justice and truth and righteousness, you have that. That's what fills your heart. And we're invited into that to be co-heirs, co-rulers in Christ. That's who you are. Missionary God reaching out to us with himself. Now, uh, I have two application points and then we'll we'll be done with Hebrews chapter one. To bear witness to this kind of Christ. What does that mean? I think it means two things. Number one, It's a commitment to personal growth. Verse 4 says this, having become as much better than the angels. Now, this word become feels a little bit different than the word immutable, which means God doesn't change. If God doesn't change and Jesus is God, what do you mean he's becoming? Now, this is a tension that's maintained throughout the book of Hebrews. For example, later the author talks about how Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. And you read that, we'll get to it later, and you're like, what do you mean he was made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? You have to ask that honest question. But here's what I understand for now. There's a kind of formation and becoming that's part of Jesus' journey and process here as he's working on earth. One of the questions that I get asked a lot is, why doesn't God just do away with evil and suffering in the world? And the answer is because if he were to do away with it right now, here in this room, all of us would have to die with it. Because evil and darkness is now meshed and intertwined with light and goodness. And there's a whole process that God is working through as a way to rid the world of the lies and the darkness and yet save me. God, please don't throw me away. Now, if God were to reveal just a little bit of darkness about me to me, I would enter into deep depression about that. I begin to feel self-loathing about that. I would begin to feel weighed down and feel heavy and hopeless about the fact that I am that person. That's just a little bit of truth. If God were to just fully turn on all of the lights that would cause me to see everything that was dark and evil about me, how would I be able to handle that? The scriptures tell us that if we were to see God, we would die. I don't think it's because he's just a mean guy. I think the light itself would just dissolve me because it would dissolve darkness and I am connected to the darkness right now. That's why Jesus is made perfect through the suffering. That's not about Jesus being 
mutable or imperfect. That's about Jesus trying to save us as the God-man. We'll get to that later. But here's, here's my point. Commitment to personal growth. Because the first call of bearing witness to Christ is to actually bear witness to Christ. Well, Peter, how do I actually have firsthand accounts of who Jesus is? The book of Hebrews will teach chapter after chapter after chapter that where we experience Jesus Christ is in the places of our suffering. If you ever hear a great insight shared by somebody about God, ask them where and how they learned that truth about God, and they will tell you a story about pain and suffering and confusion and disillusionment and numbness in their life, a season where life was hard. And through the valley of the shadow of death, they learned this one precious truth about who Jesus is. And they're able to bear witness to that truth. And there's an invitation for all of us not to rid our lives of suffering. That's not going to happen. But to enter into that suffering and ask the question, God, where are you in this? And you will walk out of that valley of the shadow of death with a pearl, some insight, some deep, deep firsthand account of who God is. You will say God is faithful. You will say God is provider. You will say God is worthy of worship. God is gentle. God is kind. God is persistent. Well, where'd you learn that? Well, I was going through a hard time. That's where I learned it. Commitment to personal growth because where you are growing, where you are hurting, where you are in pain is where you will experience the very, very person of Jesus Christ. What will qualify you to be the world's greatest evangelist is your pain. That's the truth. That is the absolute gospel truth. Second application point is commitment to action on God's part. We're going to give God an application point here today. God, why don't you do something for a change, huh? Jesus is our premier witness. And the fact that Jesus is, is testimony to the fact that God is a missionary God. He is working throughout history, all of history, to reach us with revelation about himself. And you know what that means? That means that God is the primary actor in the world. In your life, it's not you driving your life. It's not your competence. It's not your personality. But it's God himself initiating movement, forward movement in your life, causing you to grow and mature up into the Godhead. That's the work of God in your life. Tim Keller puts it this way. Jesus isn't telling you how to find God, but Jesus is God come to find you. I'm serious. Study world history, and you will learn that the most powerful force that's moving the world forward are happy accidents. We're not smart enough to invent penicillin. Penicillin was invented by accident. Penicillin is a great example of all of the serendipity in your life. Think about the people you've met who've impacted you most. You didn't go searching out for them. 
Somehow, by accident, you met them, and now they are this force in your life. Think about how you ended up where you ended up. Think about the formative experiences in your life. Think about the influential people in your life. Think about the formative circumstances that have shaped you. They were all accidents, as far as you're concerned, because it was God at work. He is the actor, the initiator, the drive. He always has been, and he always will. At the end of world history, you will look up at God and praise him because you will say, God, you are worthy, not me. I was messing up my life. I continue to mess up my life all the days of my life, but it is by your grace I've made it to your feet. You will say that. Every knee will bow because what else do knees do when truth is right there? God speaks to us today through his son, through his spirit. I want to end with this picture behind me. This is Gibraltar. I I found this picture this week, and I can't stop looking at this picture. Because there's that little sliver of civilization that can only exist by the mercy of this giant rock. And that's how my life is. Here is God, and here is little old me. And it's not by my power or by my will that I believe and move and have my being. But it is by the mercy and grace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we look to you today together to be the initiator and the actor in our life. And we will respond in worship, with growth, with love towards others. But we really do look to you foundationally to move us forward and to cause us to experience you that we might bear witness to you. God, we repent of all the false witnesses we've borne, all the ways that we've uh, inaccurately conveyed you to the world, to our friends and family of all the discouragement and stumbling we've caused, uh, not because of you, but because of us. Help us to be true witnesses of Christ as we study this book together in Jesus' name. Amen.